Hey, everybody. Welcome to The Back Room. I'm Andy Ostroy. We have a very interesting conversation for you today with Dr. Sheila Nazarian. We're going to be talking about the Israeli-Hamas war. But first, let me thank you for tuning in. We appreciate you listening, and we'd love to hear your comments. So email us at backroomandy at gmail.com and or post on our social media, and we'll read some feedback next time. And if you like the podcast, please follow or subscribe, and you'll be notified every time we post a new episode. So let me tell you a little bit about Dr. Sheila Nazarian. She is a top board certified plastic surgeon in Beverly Hills and the star of the Emmy-nominated Netflix series Skin Decision. She's also a mom, wife, humanitarian, and activist. Dr. Sheila Nazarian, welcome into the back room. Thanks, Andy. Thanks for having me on. So before we get into the news of the day and our main subject, which is the Israel-Hamas war, I first became aware of you on Twitter and I had no idea that you have this show on Netflix. And so I wanted to give you an opportunity to tell the listeners about the show for a couple of minutes, how it got started. So I was always, you know, I'm an Iranian immigrant. My family escaped Iran literally on the back of a pickup truck in the mid 80s during the Iran-Iraq war. And, you know, I came to America. I was such a nerd. I always joke I had a mustache and my parents wouldn't let me shave my legs because that means I want to be promiscuous, you know, all that stuff. So it was just super nerdy. And um, my mom put me in dance class and then into, you know, I got into some theater stuff in high school and it really helped me, I think, um, be comfortable in front of a microphone or in front of a camera. So I eventually, you know, long story short, became a plastic surgeon. My fifth year of plastic surgery residency, my one of my chiefs asked me, so where do you see yourself in five years or 10 years? And I said, I'm going to have my own show. And he's like, OK, psycho, you go do that. And, um, you know, I started I was one of the first plastic surgeons that was making uh, YouTube videos. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know that Google owns YouTube and the SEO ramifications of that. And also so many um, expert uh, TV spots were offered to me because when you search something, I was like the entire row of videos that shows up when you Google search something were all my videos on that topic. And so just a lot of TV, never had a PR person. Um, and eventually, you know, the producers with these plastic surgery show pitches started coming my way. So I was actually under contract with E for a year and that show ended up not getting picked up. I was completely devastated. But one of the producers on that show was doing the Skin Decision show on Netflix, and he came and got me and said, listen, we want you to participate in this show instead, which ended up being amazing because it really isn't your typical plastic surgery show. It's very much like a docu-style, why people get plastic surgery. Let's listen to their stories behind it. Let's go through the recovery process with them, see see what they have to say, what their experience is like, how it transforms someone on the inside. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it did really well. It was nominated for an Emmy and a People's Choice Award. It was COVID. So I got to do the Emmy red carpet in my kitchen in my pajamas with like my family screaming in the background. Um, so uh, it wasn't as glamorous as I would have hoped, but it really changed, I think, the way people viewed plastic surgery and really helped elevate the industry as a whole. Um, where you know, when I was doing social media, plastic surgeons, believe it or not, on the whole, are very conservative bunch. And they really didn't approve of my being on social media at all. They thought showing before and afters was unethical because you're marketing something. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so after the show came out, really, I think the way that it was viewed um, by colleagues 
helped gain some acceptance for me um, as, oh, wow, she's really representing the specialty in a, in a positive way. And so I encourage everyone to go watch it. I think it did amazing things for my social media. It's in 32 countries and so many different languages. Wow. And so it allowed me to gain an Instagram following that wasn't just the echo chamber, right? It was really people from all walks of life. So when all of this anti-Semitism stuff started happening, I was really in a unique position to educate people who maybe even have never met a Jewish person. Um, and I wasn't just, you know, the activist that kept um, speaking to the echo chamber. It was really a way for me to change hearts and minds. And so that's how I've been utilizing it. Well, I think a lot of people, you know, their perceptions of plastic surgery are about boob jobs and nose jobs and procedures that are geared to vanity and are elective versus the kind of procedures you're talking about. But I'll tell you, Andy, even the boob jobs, even the tummy tucks after, you know, a mom uh, has had children, right? those are not any less impactful and important than the reconstructive stuff, believe it or not. I think if you have positioned yourself and branded yourself in such a way where you're attracting not insane people, but actually very accomplished intellectually, um, you know, uh, accomplished uh, patients, they just need help with this one little thing. And the effect that that can have on their outlook on life has ripple effects to everyone that they come in contact with. A hair transplant for a man, you have great hair, we discussed this, but a hair transplant for a man has huge ramifications for confidence for that man. Um, a tummy tuck for a mom of three, that can literally save her 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 sex life with her husband. Um, it can, you know, take somebody who's depressed and turn them happy. And a happy mom, you know, they say happy wife, happy life. I mean, so I don't want to downplay the effects that aesthetic uh, elective procedures can have on patients. I think when people look at plastic surgery, they're a little myopic about it because they only see it as somebody who's got too much yeah. money who just wants, you know. Right. Or that. right. Not that they're, you know, living a life in a debilitated way, emotionally, yeah, no, physically. Sure. And by the way, I, I was bald, but I had a lot of back hair. So I had a transplant. Uh, I, I shifted the hair from my back to my head. I actually had somebody who was really good at it. So you can't you can't even tell, except I have a rib sticking out of my head in the back. <laughs> that was a screw up. So let's talk about uh, your activism and your what I consider your very important voice. I came upon you very recently on Twitter. You're very active on Twitter. I just want to play this clip for you. I see a lot of accounts still trying to take the higher road. Don't pick a side. Um, it's integrity. Don't pick a side. There are no sides. Um, these accounts have actually never lived through war and never personally uh, felt real oppression. And guess what? When you're in your $100 Lululemons with your $10 latte in your hand, you're not oppressed. So I'm here to let you know for those of us that have actually suffered these things in our life, there is no higher road. You have to take a side. And I hope it's the side of good and not evil. So when I came across that video of yours uh, several days ago, it so resonated with me because I've literally been saying the same thing. As an American Jew... I've said this for years. I am not going to sit in some Starbucks on the Upper West Side and tell Israel and Israelis what to do when the missiles are flying over their heads, when their pizza parlors are getting blown up. Don't sit 
somewhere thousands of miles away and sit in arrogant judgment of a nation that is literally fighting for its survival after yet another attack, and in this case, the worst massacre of Jews since the Holocaust. So I wanted to get back to your background uh, because I think it is very important in the for, as context in this discussion, especially as someone who's come from uh, a place of experiencing fear, terror, oppression, war, etc. Well, it, that that specific clip was in reaction to um, some of my colleagues, and specifically one um, Iranian influencer who uh, basically is. Uh, you know, trying not to lose followers, right? That's really what it comes down to. And saying, oh, you know, um, taking this um, all lives matter approach, I guess um, the progressives would say. And yeah. um, I think that the leap that Americans have not yet made uh, is that, especially the progressives, you know, um, in New York, Los Angeles, they're so shell-shocked by the fact that these people they marched with don't stand with them, right? They're so surprised. They're so they're so shell shocked that they're like, okay, these people don't stand with us, but they still haven't made the connection that these people actually hate Jews, that they actually want the destruction of Israel. They haven't made that leap yet. They've made the leap that these people aren't standing with me. I feel betrayed, and maybe I see some hypocrisy now. But it's so foreign to the American mind that people in this world do not share the same core values as you. In fact, so far as to value death and martyrdom over the sanctity of life. I mean, that's how polar opposite many people in the world's core values are. So again, in this naive believing in the good of people and optimistic na naivete of the American safe space to intellectualize these matters, having actually never lived in the region and, and being told as a third grader to say death to this, death to that, death to this person. It's such a foreign concept that they're trying to create some sort of moral equivalency between Israel and Hamas. Or, you know, a democracy and an ideological extremist terror state. So I always say, like, I've been screaming this from the hills, like, for three years now, and I think people are finally starting to wake up, is it doesn't make you a bad person to call out evil. It doesn't make you a bad person to take a side. And I think in America, people are so afraid of being canceled or being called a racist or being called an Islamophobe. We can't, we can't, this political correctness is going to lead to our demise. We need to be, I'm a doctor, right? I always say you have to make the correct diagnosis to be able to apply the correct treatment. Mm -hmm. If we keep pussyfooting around um, making the correct diagnosis because we're so scared to offend someone or we're so scared, you know, whatever, we are going to lead to our own demise, period. What do you make of what we're experiencing, this rise in rabid anti-Semitism all over the world, fueled to me in, in large part by a lot of misinformation, disinformation, misguided opinions, 
we see it through comments and tweets from people like Congressman Rashida Tlaib and about the hospital bombing or about from the river to the sea, this rhetoric that is being spread. And then you have these college students, and I don't think they look at the nuance, the history. They talk about free Palestine, yet Hamas is firmly not only against a two-state solution, but literally in its charter has the destruction of Israel. And as recently as this week, Ghazi Hamad, one of the Hamas officials said, we vow to continue the attacks over and over and over again until Israel is annihilated. So I wonder, the young people who are out in the streets protesting, perhaps well-intentioned, some of them aren't, but the ones that are well-intentioned, do they even understand this? Well, it comes down to a few things um, that we need to unpack. I think that a lot of the protesters, um, I've witnessed it, are getting paid to be part of those protests. So, for example, the, the protest that happened in Los Angeles, we asked some people, why are you here? And they said, oh, somebody paid us $25. That's really? number one. Yes. Number two. Who, who would be paying um, them, by the way? Um, these organizations, uh, you know, Jewish Voices for Peace, um, Students for Justice in Palestine, which, by the way, are well-funded by foreign entities, mm -hmm. um, would like to see the demise of America. Um, the other thing, one of my friends, I was at a bar mitzvah last night, he said that they were in Italy and they were in Bologna, which is like a super small village. And there was this like pro-Palestinian protest. It lasted two hours. Everyone got on buses and then they drove them to the next city and then they had another like wow. pro-Palestinian protests. So I would say take it with a grain of salt, number one, especially in, in America. Um, that's number one. Number two, I think all of the misinformation, disinformation comes down to two categories, social media and our universities and education system. And I think that the um, disinformation arm of uh, you know Hamas and the, this extremist ideology has played a very nice long game, and we have failed. Um, I remember I saw an article about the 2021 conflict that 90% of pro, like Palestinian pro Hamas Instagram comments on social media were tracked back to two IP addresses in Malaysia. Wow! So they have bots. They have bots. Mm -hmm. We need bots. There's only 15 million of us. We need allies and we need bots, right? Mm -hmm. So um, that's that's the social media game. Mm -hmm. And what they've done is they've done a great job of uh, Pallywood, right? So I posted on my Instagram, this one guy has shown up in 12 different videos. The first video, he's a, a patient. The next video, he's, he's allegedly performing CPR on the wrong spot of someone's chest. I'm a doctor. I know where, where you're supposed to put that pressure. Um, on, an, on the next one, he's a reporter. On the next one, he's a tour guide. On the next one, so, and so he came out today again. I posted, the New York Times posted a picture of a supposedly injured young girl. He's in the background again, the same dude. Yeah. He is like the number one influencer of the year for Hollywood. And also, if you notice, all of the death rates coming out of Gaza, if you listen carefully to the news, it says, according to the Hamas-led health ministry right i'm not going to believe anything that comes before those words or after those words mm. right would we believe anything isis put out no why are we believing hamas right and the difference is that the enemy of hamas are jews and again it comes down to anti-semitism which by the way isn't new it's just more acceptable and bubbling up 
It was hidden as anti-Zionism. I was just on a call this morning with college students and they were saying, you know, a few years ago, it was just anti-Israel. It wasn't really anti-Semitism like we're seeing now on campus. Okay, well, 90, 95% of Jews are, are Zionists. So actually that was the same thing. You were just in denial. I want to talk to you about anti-Semitism and, and what you think are the, the reasons for the explosion of it in a second. But I, I want to read a tweet because you mentioned the colleges and universities. You tweeted, I think it was in the last 24 hours, um, you said, quote, Jewish parents, encourage your kids to go into politics and to become university deans. We have enough doctors. <laughs> I mean, it's kind of true when you see what's going on in Harvard and all, other universities, like the misinformation that is being spread by educated people, people who should be teaching our youth history so that they can form a more educated, nuanced But you have to opinion. look at who's funding these universities. Did you see the funding numbers? $1.4 billion given to Cornell by Qatar. And the, what and, is that who, for? Who, who, Middle who, Eastern Studies Department. Yeah, well, who Hire is Qatar? Who is Hamas's biggest uh, supporter financially? Iran. And Qatar. Qatar. Uh, so anti-Semitism, it's been around for centuries, since the beginning of time. Jews have been persecuted since the Crusades, the Spanish Inquisition, the Holocaust, the pogroms in Russia. Why do you think this particular moment in time has caused it to explode and even spill over into Jews? I mean, this Jew-on-Jew -Jew shit drives me crazy. Crazy. I know. So I think, I, you know, I was just discussing this last night, too. I think that whenever there is an economic decline, whenever there's social unrest, I think that the Jews, because A, we're a minority, so we're easy pickings, right? We're like that um, scrawny kid on the playground. Right. So there's so few of us that we're easy pickings, right? The secondly, we're very successful and we tend to, you know, be with ourselves a lot because we've been kicked out from place to place. We've been um, basically betrayed by so many different places and so many different people that we stick to ourselves. So, again, there's a jealousy aspect there. It's kind of like what Kanye said, right? I'm jealous that they don't abort their babies. I'm jealous that the fathers stay married to the mothers. I'm jealous that they get a good education. I'm mm -hmm. jealous that they're, you know, supportive of each other as a community. And so I feel like there's a ton of jealousy, but I feel like every time there's social or economic unrest, it's a very easy scapegoat because we're such a minority to pick on. Yeah, I, I mean, it's it's something that uh, I'm astounded by because it's as, if, it's as if we have not learned from Nazism and the Holocaust. I mean, really the same thing happened in Israel, right? I mean, some of the there's a woman there that would go to the Gaza border in one of the um, kibbutzim. She would go to the Gaza border and fly kite every weekend so that the children of Gaza can come and fly kite on the other side. There's another woman that would give rides to the infirmed in Gaza to, you know, Israeli hospitals. Right. She would go to the Gaza border, pick them up and give them rides so that they can get cancer care and mm -hmm. medical care. Mm -hmm. They were slaughtered. Yeah, I read, about, I read about those people. And you can help the people who want you, you slaughtered and annihilated, but it doesn't change the fact that they still hate you. And that's the thing I can't get away from. It's... Why can't people just say what happened on October 7th was horrific, it was barbaric, and it was absolutely, unequivocally unjustified, period. The minute they start Andy, with the butt- because they hate Jews and they want dead 
Jews. Yeah, no, I this agree with you. Not, it's not mental gymnastics. It's they say it out loud. When are the positive, optimistic, altruistic people of America going to listen? When? Well, they're not listening. There's a whole segment of the Jewish population all over the world that is truly living in denial. And I don't know why that is, because, you know, I grew up with never again. Never again, right? That means what? It means never the fuck again, right? It's yeah. two simple words. You know, it doesn't need a lot of dissecting. Never again. Well, now Andy, in New York, are you noticing a change? Because I will tell you in Los Angeles, I am seeing the Amy Schumers, the Deborah Massings, the Mandana Dayanis, um, the educated Persian Jewish progressive doctors are looking at me and being like, I totally fucked up. I totally, I, I cannot believe that I marched with these people. Mm -hmm. I cannot, like, they're like in a state of shock in Los Angeles. Well, it's Did interesting you, you say that. I, there's a lot of people, yeah, there's a lot of people in New York who I think feel that way. But I have friends in Israel, and I recently had someone on the show who's in Israel. She's an author. She works at the Times of Israel. And this was like maybe a week after the attack. I said, are you mm -hmm. seeing a lot of people who a week ago were anti-government, anti-Netanyahu, and now we got to stay alive no matter what? And she said, yeah. It's like, how do you reconcile helping the other side wanting to help the other side, feeling for the other side, having this kind of compassion and empathy, going against your own people, your own country even. And then this kind of a massacre occurs, which proves to you that all the other side, and, and I'm not making a sweeping generalization of the people in Gaza per se, the average Palestinian, although I didn't conduct any polls, I can't tell you what they think. I know what they grow up well, with. Well, let me tell you the polls, Andy. Let me tell you the polls. Mm -hmm. I'll tell you the polls. 52% of Gazans voted for Hamas mm -hmm. and 77% of Gazans and West Bank occupants agree with violent aggression against Israelis, 77%. Mm -hmm. So so there you go. Yeah, no, and that context is important. But, you know, it's it's when people realize that that safety net, that security that they felt, that invincibility, that aside from a random suicide bombing, which which is horrible when they, those occur, they never felt that like the, the, the enemy could invade their neighborhoods, their communities, break into their homes, torture them, rape them, kill them, burn them alive. Like that is a shock. You know, your world changes when you go through something, which is why that video that you posted really resonated with me because it's like saying to people, you don't know until you know. And the people in Israel who may have been on the streets protesting, all of a sudden their family and friends are getting butchered in, in this barbaric attack. It changes your perspective. So getting back to the subject of anti-Semitism, I can't seem to understand and reconcile how when a, a country is attacked the way it was, how are they the, not the victim? Why do they get attacked after the attack? That's like attacking well, a, I mean, a woman again, who's raped. We're seeing you know? the equivalence of Holocaust denial in real time. We're showing body cam footage of the Hamas, you know, barbarians, and people are saying it's not real. <laughs> it's like insanity. But again, propaganda in Iran was a thing. Like everybody just knew you don't trust this. You don't trust these people. You don't trust what comes out of here. Americans are so trusting. 
they're so like believing in I don't know um what what the news tells them and what the teachers say and like all this stuff there's just this lack of intellectual debatism Mm -hmm. in America it's sort of like well if they say it's true and the news says it's true it's real I should believe it whereas like in every other country they're like you believe your news that's so funny yeah you posted something also about Arafat's daughter being the only heir to an eight billion dollar fortune and this is another subject that I talk about all the time no one's going to deny that Palestinians in Gaza live in squalor they've been persecuted but the Palestinian people have been fucked over by their leadership for decades. How does Arafat have an, an, a, a, an estate worth $8 billion? It's because all these countries in the world, especially the United States, get given money to the PLO, and he was sending it off into Europe and Swiss bank accounts, and his wife's living in Paris, and now his kid has a fortune of $8 billion. Is that any different than what Hamas is doing today, which is why a lot of people no. are saying, if, if we give them a pa- humanitarian aid, the oil, the food, all these things, resources may not be going to where it's intended, which is the people who are suffering. It's going to go to further the war machine, the terror machine. So again, Andy, this has also been studied. 5% of the aid that is sent to Gaza actually goes to the people. 5%. Where is that? Okay. Where does that come from? I'll look it up for you and I'll send it to you. I'm like so deep into these like articles and stuff, mm-hmm. but I'll look it up and send it to you. 5% actually makes it to the people. You're right. All of the cement that's sent for infrastructure, hospital building, uh, schools, um, job opportunities is put into terror tunnels. Mm -hmm. The water pipes that are sent over there to build irrigation systems are used to make bombs. Mm -hmm. So, And look at Iran. It's the same thing. Women in Iran are having to prostitute themselves because they need food. Right? Mm -hmm. Because And look at how much money their moms have. And how none of the money makes it to the actual people of Iran. The the stepdaughter of Kamala Harris has a fundraiser raising almost $8 million for, for Gaza. Where do you think that money is going to go? You think it's actually going to go to the Gazans? No, maybe 5%. The rest is going to go fuel more terror. So congratulations. I hope you feel good that you've raised money for Gaza. So th- this is um, why it's again, such a complicated subject. Send food. Send clothing, right. send things that cannot be um, made to fund terror. Why Why does Biden keep sending money? Stop sending money. Send actual items that you know are going to reach these people. Every dollar you send, you are just funding more terror. I, I Again, the Persian Jews in, in Los Angeles, in New York, we get it. We lived in Iran. We're first-generation Americans. We get it. it. Why is it so hard? For this administration to understand that you don't enrich extremists, it will not make it to the people. Mm-hmm. You know, under under this administration, again, Iran has been enriched by $80 billion because the sanctions that were placed on Iran in the previous administration were, were, were lifted. Mm-hmm. $80 billion. Where do you think that money goes? There has been rockets thrown into Israel that had Persian writing on it. Well, this is why it's a, it's a problem for me when I hear the phrase open-air prison. Israel pulled out of Gaza in 2006. Hamas has been in control since 2006. I cite the massacre of October 7th. You have an, a terrorist organization that somehow figure out a way to freely move around Gaza, build fake kibbutzim training with para, you know, paratroopers, 
They figured out a way to get tons of money into the country and then spend it on 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 uh, weapons. And then they actually crossed the border into Israel. Well, that doesn't sound very prisony to me. That doesn't mean that the average person in Gaza isn't living in some kind of open air prison. But if they are, is that Israel who put them in an open air prison or is that Hamas who has them in an open air prison? It didn't have to be an open air prison. You know, when when Gaza was handed over, people said it could be the new Singapore. There was green greenhouses that were made by Israelis that were gifted right. to the Gazans. What did mm -hmm. they do? They destroyed them because they said these are somehow filthy because Jews built them. So they could have taken all of the aid money, all of the opportunity, all of the fertility of that land and created the new Singapore. But instead, what they decided to do is fund terror. So they bombed the you know pizza parlors, as you as you said. And so therefore, a fence was built to create checkpoints, just like when you come from Mexico to America, there's a checkpoint, just like when you go to any country, there's checkpoints. But for some reason, again, this uh, misinformation uh, machine has made it, oh, these people are in prison. Every country has a checkpoint when you want to cross a border. Every single one. So, you know, and that's but, in the absence for some of, reason, this okay. is a prison. Yeah, but it's that's only in the a absence. prison because Hamas took all the opportunity away from these people. The only reason why they're living in squalor is because the money that is being given to them is being used for terror and not for actually the enrichment and potential ability to thrive of the, the Gazans. I think that's partly the problem when people are criticizing Israel today it's as if they're only looking at October 8th and beyond no one's looking at history no one's looking at well the they always set this they always set history to start on the day that it's most convenient for them correct exactly so what happens going forward what happens after this is all over is Netanyahu gone Who's running Gaza? Well, I don't think anyone knows, right? And I think we're all, you know, kind of mentally masticating all of these um, abilities. But what I will tell you is when you talk to, um, you know, I have friends in Israel who do a lot of uh, build, uh, bridge building and secret meetings with uh, the people in Gaza to see how they can create more opportunity for people there. Because if you have opportunity and you have something to live for, you're not going to go martyr yourself, right? So mm -hmm. those people, when they get a job in Israel, are so happy. They are they they literally come across that checkpoint and kiss the ground because they know that they're gonna get paid. There's a 60% unemployment rate in Gaza right now. And so how are people gonna support their families, you know, do nothing, there's no jobs, or go blow yourself up, make ten thousand dollars and get a monthly stipend to support your family. You know, the options are limited. So to me, if I was gonna be living in that area, I would much rather be under a government that cared about the people, that didn't embezzle money that was sent there for the aid of the people, provided real jobs, real future, real opportunity, and something to live for. To me, that is the type of government that you know I would want to live under. And actually, it's funny. There, I, I heard of an um, audio interview of uh, the Hadid father. And he said the same thing. He said, if I had to go live there, I wouldn't want to live under an extremist ideology. I'd want to live under the government you know, that gives freedom of speech and LGBTQ rights mm -hmm. and women's rights and all of that. He said the same thing. It's so, so logical, but this is the point about people being either misinformed or So to me, I, would, I think the Gazan population would have a lot more opportunity if they were not being led by an Islamist mm -hmm. extremist organization that values death over life.
So however that happens, and I think Israel has to think about the aftermath, right? Like we took out Saddam Hussein. Now what happened in Iraq? Right. You don't want to leave a vacuum mm -hmm. to be filled by worse mm -hmm. or by an unknown entity. So what I would say is in the discussions, and I'm sure Israel, you know, people are very smart. I think the discussions they're having now is what comes next, just like you're asking me now. And I think they're fully aware that they can't leave a vacuum and that there has to be some sort of viable partner. Mm -hmm. Um in that region, whether it's them or whether it's somebody else, but that somebody that's a viable partner to create long lasting peace. I think this is, Hamas is done. I think Hezbollah needs to be done. ISIS needs to be done. The world needs to stand up against extremist Islam, just like the Iranian people who are, who are Muslim themselves are standing up mm -hmm. against this extremist ideology. So, I would like to see, and I think the only way this ends is if moderate Muslims, of which there are billions in the world, stand up and say, we do not agree with radicalized Islam. We do not agree with this extremist ideology. We rebuke it. It is not a good look for our religion. Mm -hmm. And we want to live with an acceptance and in a peaceful way. I think that, which the Abraham Accords, I think, is bringing into play a lot. You know, look at look at Dubai. There's no extremists. There's no terror. None of that. Right. Because they rebuked it. Look at Egypt with Muslim Brotherhood. Lots of bloodshed. They kicked it out. They said, we don't want we're a Muslim country, but we don't want extremist Islam. So I think that the Muslim countries, the moderate Muslim countries who are looking for a path forward, who are looking for stability in their region, who are looking to do business and, and, and thrive as a whole. Need to come together and denounce the Islamists. I think that that is my hope for long-lasting and real peace in the region. I do have hope. Got to have hope, you know. I've lived my whole life with crisis in the Middle East. It's like such an old, tired story already. I just hope that people can someday figure this shit out because all it does is just lead to death and destruction everywhere. And when you talk about this escalating into other countries and it's not a good situation. So we're not going to fix it here, but I do appreciate you coming on and talking about it because I think you do have a, a very important perspective and an even more important voice. And hopefully you'll come back again. Yeah, I'd be happy to, right. to be continued. Take care. Bye. This episode of The Back Room was edited and produced by me, Andy Ostroy. It was co-edited and co-produced by Maddie Rosenberg and co-produced by Jen Hamoud. Our theme song was composed by Andrew Hollander and our logo was designed by Cricket Langell. And special thanks to Patricia Wind. Please take a moment to rate and review the podcast and also follow or subscribe. Until next time, keep your eyes on Washington, Hollywood, and your own backyards, and have a great week. Bye.